1 Samuel chapter 12. As we left off last time together, Samuel had called the children of Israel together at Gilgal there and had sort of encouraged them that it was time to renew the kingdom. There had been some uh, differences of opinion regarding Saul becoming their king, but this was the king that God had determined would be the first king of Israel as the people had desired to have a king rule over them, though that doesn't seem, as we'll see tonight, very clearly in chapter 12, that this was God's ideal for them. This wasn't apparently God's preference for them, but God gave them their desire. God allowed them, if you would, to have what they wanted rather than what he had willed for them, which was that he would be their king and that he would rule over them. So God has granted to them Saul because he was the type of king that the other nations had as well and what they were desiring. And so they sort of had at the end of chapter 11 kind of this coronation ceremony, if you would, as they came together, recognized the kingship, the rulership now of their first king, Saul, had a time of worship. And it seems in chapter 12 now, what we sort of have is sort of a transitional phase where Samuel the prophet, who is getting older, is sort of backing away now from his leadership serving as a judge and a prophet for the nation up until this point of the time of the kingship that will begin to happen now, the monarchy in Israel. And so Samuel, this older godly man, is sort of giving his, in some ways, sort of a farewell address. He's giving his final sermon to give the people spiritual exhortation and instruction to them. He'll still be around for a time, but sort of more in a role of kind of informally offering his counsel and spiritual guidance and sort of stepping back a little bit and letting the authority of King Saul have its place according to what God had permitted for the people. So we sort of get this final sermon now of Samuel here in chapter 12. It begins in verse 1 saying that Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. So Samuel had given to the people what they desired, what they felt in their own impression would be best for them, which as we've talked about in prior chapters, unfortunately a lot of times what we think is best for us isn't always the best judgment, and yet God sometimes will allow us to experience our own interests. Sometimes God will allow us to have what we long for, we chase after or pursue. Maybe it may be some job or some pursuit in life or a relationship or whatever it may be and and we're adamant we're determined that this is what we want and so sometimes God will sort of say okay there you go I'll allow you to have that and experience it for yourself and so Samuel's reminding the people I've heeded your voice I've given to you the king that you've desired to have rule over you and he says verse 2 and now here is the king walking before you and I am old and gray-headed and look, my sons are with you. Of course, his sons we know were corrupt. They didn't walk in the ways of Samuel. They were ungodly. And he says, I, verse 2, have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Now, I want you to take note. What Samuel is going to do here is call attention to his sort of blameless lifestyle as a spiritual leader among the people. He's going to call attention to his integrity, to his purity of heart in his ministry to the people, in his service to God as he lived a, a godly life before the people. And you notice that he calls attention there in verse 2 saying, 
I have walked before you from my childhood to this day, to this time now where he's old and gray-headed. He's in his elderly years and about to really pass off the scene. This is a time where he's transitioning over his leadership role. He's stepping away from his role of sort of leadership over the people spiritually at this time in an official sense. And what a beautiful statement, the example of Samuel there, that he's able to say, I have walked before you. The idea is walked in the presence of God and fellowship with God from my childhood to this day of my gray-headed and elderly years. I think this is a great testament to the fact that it is possible for a young child to know the Lord from the earliest days of their life and to not deviate and to continue to serve the Lord. And, and, uh, but what I mean by that is this. Remember Samuel's history. Samuel was a child that was prayed for by his parents. And literally, we talked about chap back in chapters 2 and 3 how Samuel truly was really the answer to a prayer that God was longing for someone to be praying in Israel because God needed a prophet. God needed a strong man of God, a man who would step into the generation in which Israel was in in that time that was immoral and irreligious and the people had rebelled against God. And finally, as a result of the barrenness of Samuel's mother, she came to a place where she said, God, I don't even want a child for myself anymore. If you would just give me a child, I will lend that child to you all the days of his life. In other words, God, I will surrender him over to allow his life to be fully used by you. And it was at that point her prayer came in alignment, as we talked about, with the will of God. And it's almost as if God said, I have been waiting for years for someone to pray that kind of prayer. And finally, someone's heart has come into alignment with what my heart and my desire is for what I want to do. And God answered the prayer. God allowed Hannah to conceive. Samuel was born. He's named Samuel because it means heard of God. God heard her prayer. And Samuel became a young man. Remember, from the earliest days of his life as a boy, there in the tabernacle of God serving under Eli the priest from a young childhood age, uh, around the time of you know maybe three to five years old, already in the house of God, being raised in the ways of the Lord, learning how to hear God's voice. Remember, he was taught to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And this was a man who grew up from his earliest days, three, four, five years old, learning how to hear from God, how to follow God, how to let his life even be used for God. He was serving, doing small errands in the tabernacle. And this man from his childhood walked with God, listened to God, loved God and served God all the way through to his latter years, to his elderly years. And never once did he have to go get lost to get found. Do you understand what I mean by that? Because a lot of times we have this perception that it's almost necessary that if someone's raised in the ways of the Lord, well, yeah, but they kind of have to go out there at least at some point and kind of just, you know, some would say in other terms, they just give it a chance to just go there, sow their oats a little bit. And then after they go sow their oats and get their taste and fill of the world, well, I mean, then they'll come back around. And we almost use that term if we raise our child in the ways of the Lord and train them in such a way, then when they're old, they won't depart from it. The idea is, well, and if they do, they'll, I mean, they'll eventually, the idea is, when we say it is, they'll come back around to it again. When the reality is, that doesn't have to be the case. Certainly, that does happen. 
And God works all things for the good, ultimately, and he has his plans and purposes to intervene in everybody's life. But the reality is Samuel sets a great example of someone who from his earliest days to his latter years, he never deviated from his love for God. He followed the Lord. And let me just say, that's the best way. That's the greatest testimony. I was prayed for by my parents. I was dedicated to the Lord and I knew nothing my whole life but living for God, loving God, serving God. Not that he was a perfect man by any means, but his sons were raised in his ways and they turned away. The idea is with Samuel is he says, I never turned away. From my earliest days, from my childhood to this day, I've walked with God before you and what a great example. God give us more Samuels. God give us more occasions where we see young people from the earliest days, our children being raised in the Lord and that they don't have to go deviate, that they don't need to go get battle scars and have regrets and wounds, but that they could be comfortable with, yes, I just lived for God my whole life and I served him my whole life and walked with him in faithfulness. That certainly is the highest ideal. And I point that out because this is for, you know, as parents and as the body of Christ, what we should pray for. Is it always going to happen that way? No. And God's good and gracious and he works out the details when we all mess up. But God help us to have a heart to realize that this is possible. It's possible. And our young people need to know, listen, it's okay to just walk with the Lord and never turn. That's a good testimony. You do have a testimony. You have the best testimony. You have Samuel's testimony. And Samuel's quite a spiritual giant when you study his life in the scriptures as a whole. So he says, from my childhood to this day, you know how I've lived and walked with the Lord and before you. And he says, verse three, here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed or from whose hand have I received any bribe in which to blind my eyes where he would pervert justice for some selfish or personal gain? And he says, if you can point out an instance, I'll gladly restore it to you. And they said to him, look at this. This is quite a testimony. You have not cheated us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And then he said to them, the Lord is witnessed against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand that is of guilt, the idea is. And they answered and said, he is witness or God is witness. So again, what Samuel is doing, he's calling attention simply just as he's dying off now and he's calling attention to his integrity, to his honesty, to the fact that he had a pure heart and motivation in his service to God and to the people. He served God in a selfless way. He didn't use his position to somehow manipulate gain or, or take advantage of people in some way. That He was giving them a chance to indicate, look, if I've done something in error or I've abused my role, he says, please point it out to me. I'm willing to take responsibility for it. And the people came back and said, you're blameless, Samuel. Now, it doesn't mean he was perfect. And to be blameless is different than to be perfect. No one's perfect. Only Jesus was perfect and sinless. But we can be blameless as the Bible speaks about. Blameless just means that there's nothing of conscious guilt that we've done in our life that we can be blamed for. The idea is there's not something that is clearly obvious that we have done wrong that people can hold us to account for and blame us for. 
Uh, and certainly this should be what we aspire towards. Not that we're ever going to be perfect, but we should live in a way where there is integrity and honesty and selflessness and that we have a pure heart in what we do and why we do it so that we can live and work and function among people in a way where there's a blamelessness to our reputation. That people can say, you know what, honestly, I, there's not something that I can point out about what that guy has done that he's guilty for. There are a lot of other people, but th there's truly nothing that comes to mind. He's been faithful. He's, he's been pure-hearted. He has integrity. He's an honest and upright man. And how great is it to be able at the end of your life to be able to say that's how you lived your life. That's what you call a life well-lived. I want to be able at the end of my life not just to look back and to, to, to glory in how great I started, but I want to be able to close my eyes and blast off and to know that I finished well. That I finished well. That's what Paul talked about. I've run the race. I've finished my course. And there's a crown laid up for me. And again, a lot of times people love to start the race. They run real fast in the middle of the race. But anybody can start a race. Only a few people finish the race. And we want to be good finishers. And here Samuel is a great picture of someone who can say... I've lived well, I've finished well is what he's saying. And he brings that to their attention, not just to glorify himself. I think it's to establish credibility to say, therefore, okay, if I've never cheated you and you know I don't have ulterior motives and you know I'm not in this just for selfish gain or to do something for my own self-interest, if you know my heart is pure and you know I want only what's good for you, I think he's bringing that up to say, therefore, please hear what I have to say because it's very important. And this would cause the people to say, listen, this man's heart is pure. So what he says, it should have some real importance and potency for us to listen to it. Because this is someone who truly is just speaking the truth from his heart with good intentions. And Samuel's going to get a little bit uh, direct now in some of what he says. Verse 6 in his sermon, it says, Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, he says, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts, the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. So he's going to recount the history now in a brief way of the children of Israel. And what he's going to call clear attention to very simply is how God has been nothing but faithful to them. And yet they have continuously rejected God anyway. And that in the same way that Samuel was a good leader to them and a godly representative to them, he's going to point out, here you are and you have rejected the Lord continuously and he has always taken perfect care of you. He has faithfully guided you. He has been a good and faithful and reliable king and yet you were willing to set him aside to pursue your own agendas and other ideas and actually thought your plan for your life was better than the plan he originally had for your life. And what he's doing here is calling this to their attention that even as God was faithful to them, they would continually forget the Lord and forsake him. So he says, stand still, listen, he says, it was the Lord from the beginning who raised up Moses. When you needed help, God sent you help, he says. When you were crying in bondage, he raised up a deliverer for you. He brought you out of Egypt. And he says, the Lord has done nothing but righteous acts for you and your fathers. Verse 80 describes when Jacob had gone into Egypt 
And your fathers cried out to the Lord. Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place, the land of promise, which was a much better experience for them. Verse 9, And when they forgot the Lord, their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera. Now that's quite a jump historically there, but he picks up on how God did what was good for you. He did what was best for you, but yet the people still forgot the Lord. That is, they, they set aside the Lord. They abandoned the Lord and turned away from him. And he said, when that happened, to get your attention, the Lord sold you into the hand of Sisera. And this was the pattern of the Lord, that when the people would forget God, and it wasn't forget in the sense as we talk about where we, I just, there was somebody that we always followed. And, and who was that again that we worship? It wasn't forget in that sense. It was forget in the sense of to choose not to remember, to set aside because you're busy pursuing something else. And this is what the people would do. They would set God aside and go after their own pursuits. And whenever they would do that, God would just let life get really difficult for them. And he would let the consequences and the struggles and the difficulties and things that they once had victory over, he would let those things begin to conquer them once again. And they would find themselves oppressed by enemies and all of a sudden they were defeated again. And they went from being victorious to feeling defeated and troubled and there was unrest among them. So he would sell them into the hand of their enemies, into the Philistines, he says, into the hand of the king of Moab, verse 9, and they fought against them. In verse 10, then the people would cry out to the Lord. This was the pattern all throughout history, through the book of Judges, we saw it recently, saying, we have sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and we serve the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us, God, from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. Lord, we're sorry. We're repentant. Please, we, we want another chance. We want to turn back to you. We, we, we confess our sin. Please, Deliver us out of this mess we've got ourselves in once again. In verse 11, and the Lord sent. What did he send? Deliverers. Jeroboam, which was a name for Gideon, we saw the judge. Bedon and Jephthah and Samuel. These were different judges throughout the time of the period when God would repeatedly send these little deliverers, these judges, who would come like sort of small saviors and would deliver the people out of their bondage from sin who delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and then you would dwell in safety once again and when you saw verse 12 that Nahash king of the Amorites came against you Samuel reminds them you said to me no but a king shall reign over us here's what he says when the Lord your God was your king so he reminds them you asked for something in your life which God was already perfectly fulfilling for you. And what did they do? They said, no, we want a king like the other nations. And he says, you were asking for something truly you already had. God was already your king. He was already ruling over your life. He was already taking care of you, protecting you, giving you guidance and direction. And yet what did they do? In essence, they chose to take their plan and agenda over God's plan and agenda and they basically sought for a man to fulfill the very role that God was already fulfilling in their life. And they chose to transition and take a man and a human being to fulfill in their life what God himself 
was already doing for them in their life and they in a sense said well yeah, that's not good enough what God's doing we think a man will do a better job and they chose to allow a human being someone of flesh to fulfill a place in their life that God was already fulfilling in their life and of course this led to nothing but problems and emptiness for them and it will lead to further problems as we see in the chapters ahead he says verse 13 now therefore here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired and take note the Lord has set a king over you so again Samuel is reminding them very clearly this was your preference this was what you chose he says here is the king that you have chosen he's saying this is your choice this is what you chose for yourself and he says in verse 13 because this is what you desired you let your desire prompt your choice and he says God gave you your desire he allowed you to have what you chose for yourself he has given it to you and it's almost as if Samuel is sort of trying to get their attention to the reality of so therefore this mess that you now find yourself in and they will find themselves in going forward he's saying please know this was of your own choosing don't blame God for this this was just your desire being given to you this was God allowing you to have your persistent desire that you chose for yourself so God has given to you this king he set this king over you according to your preference but then look what he says verse 14 if however you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God so what does Samuel do he says listen you made a mistake you shouldn't have chosen a king for yourself he's going to say down in the next few verses that this is a great wickedness that they chose a king so this is a pretty bad mistake he literally calls it down in verse 17 a, a great wickedness in the sight of the Lord asking for a king but what he's in essence saying in verse 14 here is look you've made a bad mistake but despite your mistake the Lord is willing to work in your mistake still to help you he's willing to take your mistake and the collateral damage and and the situation it's created and he's willing to even in your mistake if you're willing to follow him still and you're willing to listen to his voice he's willing to help make the best out of that situation for you still now that's called grace that's called mercy and, and listen is that not so many times on occasion the experience in our own lives we make a mistake we make a bad choice maybe we pursue a path that we shouldn't have pursued or we you know push hard and, and, and God gives us our preference and, he, and, and we make a mistake and what goes along with making mistakes but God doesn't say okay you made your bed just lie in it and since you made them that's it I'm done with you and go find another God what does God do? God says but listen if you'll listen to my voice just from where you're at from where you're at if you just follow my voice I'll help you make the best even out of that mistake I'll help you walk through it and still experience some good, a hope and a future, even amidst your mistake, if you seek and obey me from this point forward, I can redeem even your mistakes. And who would not be fair to be honest to say that there are times when we've made mistakes and God's redeemed our mistakes for us. And he took our mistakes 
But if we turn to him in a humble heart, he even redeemed the mistake and somehow made it work out in a way that was still favorable despite our poor choice in what we did. He says, you'll continue following the Lord. However, verse 15, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, the idea is if you don't learn from your mistake and you just repeat it by rebelling again against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father's. Now, therefore, he says, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest, which indicates the dry season when there were not rains? It was very unusual for rain in the time of the wheat harvest. That was the dry season. He says, I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see. Look what he says, that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves, wanting man to fulfill what God had have, should have been fulfilling in their lives. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So Samuel prophesies, I want you to know that this is the word of the Lord. This is the heart of the Lord I'm conveying to you. So he prophesies something is going to happen. As I said, that was completely unusual. This was the dry season. It was the wheat harvest. Rain didn't happen during this time. So he's saying, I'm predicting that something is going to happen. I'm going to ask the Lord to send rain. And he prophesies that, that something is going to take place. And then he prays for God to do it. And the Lord does exactly what he prophesies and he prays for. And God sends this very powerful, apparently, this very powerful, not just rain, but thunderstorm, verse 18 says, in such a way that the power and authority of God in the midst of that storm is not just so unusual, but it is so awesome that the people are struck with fear and they realize this is a validating sign from God that this is God speaking to us. This is confirming the word of Samuel to them and what it's confirming to them is God's disapproval. God saying, you see this powerful storm? This is because you've made the poor choices you have and you've brought this storm upon yourself. And so he allows this storm as a sign to validate to the people what they had done and that it was, as verse 17 says, not just an insignificant thing, but God says a great wickedness that they had done in asking a king for themselves. And this was important, and here's why. Because to the people more than likely, it didn't seem to them like a very big deal that they had asked for a king. In fact, if you were to ask them, they probably would have said, well, it seems to be working out pretty good so far. Look at chapter 11, what happened? There was a situation that arose. There was a threat from an enemy. What happened? Saul came to the rescue. He rallied some troops. They had a pretty good victory. Then they went back and had a coronation ceremony. From a surface perspective and an initial indication it looked like that what they did was working out and so in their minds hey well it seems to be working so far and and this is why perhaps god had to bring to them the awareness of despite what it may look like to you like it's working out so far god's saying i'm not in that and so god brings this storm to show his awesome power and the fact that he actually disapproves of what they have done and verse 19 says and all the people being struck with fear, said to Samuel, pray for your servants 
Pray for the servants of the Lord your God that we may not die. Do you get the impression they were pretty fearful? The storm made them think they were going to die in this storm. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. So this powerful move of God does what? It brings conviction of sin to the people. This is the description of conviction here. As they realize God's disapproval of what they've done, they feel humbled, they're broken, and the fear of God strikes within their soul and they cry out to Samuel, their spiritual leader, pray for us. We have sinned against God. What we have done is foolish and wrong and asking what we have and the conviction of sin now comes upon the people of God there in verse 19. They're asking for prayer for God's mercy over their failures and Samuel verse 20 answered the people saying, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. That's true. Yet, look what he says, verse 20. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord but serve the Lord with all your heart. Now look at that very gracious, but yet very wise response from a spiritual leader. The people say, we have failed. We've made a mess. We've made poor choices. We're convicted of our sin. And Samuel says, yes, you failed. But just because you failed doesn't mean God's going to forsake you. So he says, what you ought to do if you genuinely are sincerely sad and broken and remorseful and you want to be repentant, then he says, turn back to the Lord and serve him with all your heart like you never have before. And return to him with all of your heart. He says, don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Now, that's a good injunction because a lot of times when people fail the Lord, their first impression of their own condemnation humanly and then the devil's voice is, you failed the Lord. He doesn't want you to follow. You, you're, a, you're a failure. You might as well just go back to the world. You might as well just throw in the towel and give up everything. God has no good plans for you anymore. And the voice of the Spirit, the voice of truth, comes in and says, yes, you failed. But let your failure be what compels you to now follow the Lord more faithfully than you ever have before and to return to Him with all your heart. Not to run from Him, but to return to Him and serve the Lord with all your heart as a response of gratitude and humility and he says, verse 21, and do not turn aside for then you would go after, look what he says, empty things which cannot profit or deliver for they are nothing. See, whenever we turn aside from the Lord, this is the problem. Whenever anyone turns aside from the Lord, it's just a path towards emptiness. And he says, so don't turn aside from following the Lord. That will just lead to an a greater emptiness in your life and, and more misery in your life. And what he's trying to say to the people, no doubt, in some senses here, is listen, just because you made a mess, don't go make a bigger mess. That's what he's saying here. And sometimes people make a mess and they realize they've made a mess and they realize, oh, what a mess. I made such a mess. I made such a mess. Right. But don't make a bigger mess. You made a mess. Everybody makes a mess. Let's clean up the mess. <laughs> Let's not make a bigger mess. Let's not respond in a way that's just more foolish or, or, or just, you know, in a sense, uh, self-destructive. And he's saying, look, don't turn away from the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Turn back to him. And he says, and keep yourself from more empty, foolish things. 
He says, verse 22, as a consolation, look what he says. The Lord's not done with you. The Lord will not forsake you. He's not going to forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Do you think that just one failure or one mess is enough for God to say, well, that's it, I just, that's, I'm a one-shot kind of God. That's how I am. That's, that's the first, it's, he says here, look, it pleased the Lord to make you his people. What he's saying is, look, God's reputation's on the line here. Do you think God wants you to fail? Samuel's saying, you're his people. He doesn't want you to fail. Yes, you've made a mess. Yes, you've made some poor choices. But let's not make a bigger mess. He says, the Lord's not going to forsake you. It pleased him to make you his people originally. And it pleases him that you would continue to be his servant, that you continue to follow him and live for him and love him with all your heart. So he's saying, don't be condemned. Receive his grace. Accept his grace into your life and let his grace motivate you. Paul says, where sin abounds, grace just abounds much more. It just becomes a greater demonstration of the love of the Lord and how much pleasure he takes in his people, how much pleasure he takes in his children. I mean, what a marvelous thing to really try and swallow the fact that it actually gives pleasure to God that you are one of his followers. I mean, that's almost hard for some of us to grasp because we would almost think, I mean, I can see how God tolerates me as one of his followers, but it actually pleases God that I follow him. Yes, it does. It gives pleasure to God that he chose you to follow him, to represent him, and it gives him great pleasure the more you succeed in doing that. No matter how much you failed so far, no matter how bad you failed recently, listen, you know what's going to give God pleasure? Get up, dust yourself off, receive the blood of Christ and his forgiveness, walk in his grace, and please the Lord by just serving him with all your heart and saying, Lord, I don't want to make that mess again. I want to turn. I want to do it right next time. I want to walk in the way that you originally intended for me to walk and pursue your plans and path for me. And then Samuel adds his own heart to it to encourage them as well, verse 23. He says, moreover, as for me, far be it from me, as your spiritual leader, he says, that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. So look at that statement of Samuel there. That is a great testament. Not only trying to say, listen, I'm on your side too, and I support you, and I'm going to stand by you as your spiritual leader and encourage you. I'm not done with you and going to forsake you just because you made a mistake here. Though what happened has happened. He's saying, I'm still on your side. But what a great testament to his heart of saying, as for me before the Lord, I am going to continue to honor my calling before the Lord. And notice he recognized his calling was to do two things, to pray for them and to teach them what was the good and the right way for them to live. In fact, you know, this verse here, I had this verse written down and, and put on a, a card and I had it taped right uh, above where my computer was uh, for years and years in my office when we were pastoring in Calvary Chapel of York because I think it is such a phenomenal verse for anyone who has a heart for ministering to people. Whether you're a pastor, whether you're a small group Bible study leader, whether you're a parent because you're in ministry if you're a parent. Or whether you in any way want to disciple one person or, or, or be a mentor to someone. Look, look what this leader, this ministry, look what his heart is. He says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord 
in ceasing to pray for you. This man felt it was so important to pray for people that he said, if I cease from praying from you, I feel like that I'm sinning against God. That's how strongly he felt about prayer. The importance of prayer. These two things, working in conjunction, praying and teaching. Praying is asking for God's involvement and intervention in people's lives. And that is a crucial ministry. I would go so far to say, and you can be free to disagree, I personally hold the conviction it is more important to pray for people than it even is to teach people. Because you can share the right information with people, but if they do nothing with it, it really doesn't help very much. But when you pray in the Spirit, you're interceding in a ministry by basically saying, Lord, I'm asking you, intervene in their life. Get involved in their life. By the power of your Spirit, supernaturally, Lord, work in their life. Do things in their life that I can't do just by saying all the right things for them. And, and Samuel felt so strongly about prayer, he says, if I don't pray for you, I feel like I've sinned against God. It's sin for me if I don't pray for you. And he says, not only do I feel strongly compelled that it's sin if I don't pray for you, but he says, after I pray for you, then I will also teach you the good and the right way. And what is teaching? Teaching is imparting truth and instruction for people's lives. So praying is asking for God's involvement and intervention in people's lives. Teaching is giving an explanation of God's truth and instruction for people's lives. How to live the right way, how to live a good way, offering God's instruction and counsel and God's guidance to people of how to live out their lives in a healthy way. And let me just say, these two things work in conjunction in any form of ministry. Teaching and prayer. Prayer and teaching. These two things must work synonymously hand in hand for there to be effective ministry in people's lives. So whether we're ministering to our kids, we should teach them and instruct them the good and the right way. But we got to pray for our kids too. And we got to intercede and ask God to work it into their lives and work it through their lives. And by the same token, it's good to pray for, oh, I pray for my kids. I pray for them. I pray I don't get that phone call that embarrasses me because they got picked up by the cops. I pray for them all the time. I pray all night long. But do you teach them? It's great to pray for your kids, but do you intentionally make sure to teach your kids the good in the right way? Do you take time to make sure they understand and explain truths to them and help them reason out things? Because both of them are important and they work collectively in a way that ministry is effective for our kids. This is how ministry is effective to the people of God. If we're someone that's a spiritual leader, a pastor, a discipler of one person, a mentor, this beautiful verse, such a great verse to just contemplate and to live out in our lives. He says, I'll teach you the good and the right way. And I think verse 24 and 25 describe what that way is. Only fear the Lord. Have a healthy fear of God, a healthy respect for God. Serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. But the warning, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your kings. So look, there's good teaching of the good and the right way. He gives instruction. Here, here's good teaching. How to go the good and the right way. Have a healthy respect for God. Serve the Lord with all your heart, he says. Take time to consider the greatness of God and the good and awesome things that he has done for you to think about those things 
And then also the, the, the balancing warning. And don't think that if you do wickedly, that there won't be consequences in life. Because he says, that's not true. And see, that's good balanced teaching. Instructing, encouraging, but also warning the reality that you can't rebel against God and expect there not to be consequences. And giving those warnings is a good balanced instruction. Well, it says verse 1 of chapter 13, Saul reigned for one year. So now we begin to get into the early few days of his reign. And when he had reigned then for two years, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were under Saul's rulership in the mountains. And then 1,000 were under Jonathan's rulership. This is his son who kind of functioned as one of his military generals. The rest of the people he then sent away every man to his tent. So for the first time in Israel's history, we have an indication of a standing army. They have a 3,000 man standing army for the first time in history. Saul gathers them together, 2,000 under his command, 1,000 under Jonathan directly. And Jonathan, verse 3, he attacked the garrison of the Philistines. So he launches an offensive against one of their enemies, the Philistines. And the Philistines heard of it. But notice, after he launches an attack, Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and Israel had become an abomination of the Philistines, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Now notice, here's where you begin to see in chapter 13 some of the true colors of Saul starting to come to the surface. Jonathan launches the brave attack against the Philistines and then who blows the trumpet for it? Saul. <laughs> Jonathan actually launches the offensive and then Saul toots the horn and everybody in Israel says, hey, did you hear about that attack that Saul launched? What's he do? He's taking the credit for what somebody else did. See, this is the pride beginning to come out of Saul now. He's someone who likes the attention. He likes the glory. He's someone who's got an issue with pride in his heart. And already here he's starting to try and manifest. Again, he started out really well, Saul did. But a lot of people start out really well and then the, the, the true condition starts to surface after time. And now his true conditions are starting to kind of come to the surface. We see his pride and some of these things starting to manifest themselves. Verse 5, the Philistines then gather together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand of the multitude of the seashore. So the idea is a massive, massive army, very intimidating, lines up now in response to this attack that Jonathan launched. And they came and encamped against them east of beth Aben. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid out of fear. Notice the people were hiding in caves and thickets in rocks and holes and pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. So there's this great intimidation and fear throughout all the land of Israel because there's a massive army that is very, very intimidating against their little 3,000 man standing army with chariots and horsemen. The people are hiding for threat of their lives. And look what happens, more manifestation of Saul's character and temperament. It says, some of the Hebrews crossed over. The people are trembling, verse 8. And then Saul waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. And what this is describing, we saw this back in chapter 10. It seems that Samuel, a few years ago when Saul was 
told that he was going to be king, that Samuel had established a principle with Saul that was based upon following the Lord's guidance and had taught Saul, listen, whenever a situation arises, you wait for me. Give me a week to get to you wherever I'm at so that we can seek the Lord together. And it seemed that this was something that Saul was aware of. It perhaps became a pattern that he knew that whenever something arose, don't just act. Wait for Samuel to be able to journey to where he is so we can seek God and he'll give me the word of the Lord and then we can ask for God's help and do what God would lead us to do and not try and solve the problem in our own humanity. And it says here that this situation arises, pressure is on, it's been about seven days. Seven days are now coming to a close, the time that had been set by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. He seems like he's going to be late or he might not show up. Seven days are almost up. And the people were now starting to scatter. Oh, no. Now the people are running away. It seems like things are falling apart. The people are scattering. It's going out of my control now. I'm losing control of the situation. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, no one but the priest were to offer burnt offerings. He knew that. That was a direct violation of the word of God, of the will of God. And he just takes upon himself a role that does not belong to him. He is a king. He's not a priest. And the only one who would have both the role of a king and a priest is Jesus. And so he now does something he is not permitted to do. He abuses his authority. He now offers a burnt offering as a king who he has no right to do because he's not a priest. And look what happens, verse 10. Now it happened as soon as he finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. Isn't that how it always happens? As soon as he gives in and does the wrong thing, here comes Samuel over the horizon. Had he just waited upon the Lord just a few more minutes, he wouldn't have done something foolish. But he took matters into his own hands because he did not wait for God's timing, for God to do what God would always do, which is to come even if it's at the last hour. And so he does what is disobedient and wrong. And as soon as he had done it, here comes Samuel, now as he promised, on that seventh day, but late at the hour. And Samuel said, look, verse 11, what have you done? And Saul does what he becomes very good at. He makes excuses. He begins to demonstrate his temperament again. He never takes responsibility for himself. He just always makes excuses for everything. He says, well, when I saw that the people scattered from me, people were leaving. What was I supposed to do? I had to do something. It was, it was, it was, I couldn't control it anymore. I couldn't keep it under control myself. People were leaving. That's his first excuse. And that you did not come within the days appointed. You, you took too long. You can't make me wait that long. I, you waited to the last hour. I thought by day five you would be here and, and, and you took too long. I couldn't handle the timing. And that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, he said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, verse 12, and I've not yet made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. So Samuel here really confronts Saul for what he's doing wrong and confronts him for behaving foolishly 
And we see now, what, it, what does Saul do? Does he take responsibility for what he's done wrong? Does he acknowledge that he's in error? He does nothing but make excuses for his actions. He never wants to take personal responsibility and he demonstrates no heart of repentance in what he's done wrong. And this begins to become the downfall and the character flaw in Saul, the pride of his own heart, that he becomes an excuse maker for all of his wrong actions, that he won't take personal responsibility for the things that he does, that he's not repentant, that he blame shifts it upon everything and everyone else, and he has an excuse for everything that he does. And he says, I felt compelled and I offered a burnt offering. What's he saying? He felt like things were falling apart and he felt like he needed to do something. And he acts out of compulsion. He acts out of compulsion. He lets his feelings and his own human reasoning and his fears and his own perception of the matter cause him to feel like he is personally obligated to take the matter, listen, into his own hands. I felt compelled. I couldn't help myself. I had to do something. No, he didn't. And no, you don't. A lot of times, this is one of the greatest ones. I, why, why, I just felt compelled. I had to do something. Somebody had to do something. Really? Hasn't God always been the one who's done great things? Doesn't God always show up? Isn't God always faithful? Doesn't God never change? Aren't we supposed to wait upon the Lord even though sometimes he comes at the 11th hour to give God a chance to do what God wants to do? And so many times we make foolish mistakes. We do wrong things. We enter into things because we try to solve situations by taking matters into our own hands because we feel compelled by our emotions, our fears, our thoughts, our concerns, our own perspective. And he says, I felt compelled, so that's why I did it, which is a very poor excuse. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander of his people. Again, he reiterates, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, we'll talk about the inference there in verse 14 of a description of David being a man after God's own heart who will now be the king that God selects for his people, who the kingship will be transferred to because Saul now is informed that because he did not follow through with what the Lord commanded him, he ruined an opportunity for his life. And he says, the dynasty's taking from you now. You've lost the opportunity. You forfeited something that was an opportunity of God. And he says, I'm going to raise up someone else and transfer the position to him. And let me just say tonight, we have to be really careful because sometimes the weight of our decisions are a lot more impacting than what we often think they are. Here Saul makes this foolish decision because of compulsion and not living in faith, trusting God, waiting on the Lord, not putting his hands on the situation. And as a result, he causes some really long-term problems for himself. 
and ruins really God's best for his life. God, keep us from that. That's a very important thing we have to take heed to for ourselves. Let's stand. Let's pray together.